This episode of the Ed Surge Podcast is brought to you by the Elementary Education Program at Emporia State University. The Online Masters in Elementary Education Program at Emporia State is designed for career changers interested in becoming elementary teachers. Learn more at emporia.edu slash teachers dash college. That's emporia.edu slash teachers hyphen college. Hello and welcome to the Ed Surge Podcast, where every week we look at how education is changing. I'm Jeff Young, the managing editor of Ed Surge. We're an award-winning nonprofit newsroom. As students are sitting in classrooms, listening to their instructors, what is going on inside their brains? That's always been something of a mystery, especially when you think about younger students who may not have the words yet to describe what it is they're thinking or feeling. And let's face it, I don't think any of us know exactly how our brains are are doing the learning when we're learning new things. So what if you could strap an EEG machine on a student in a classroom setting? So EEG stands for electroencephalography. It basically means putting electrodes on someone's head and capturing the brain's electrical activity, what is known as brain waves. That's Ido Davidesco, an assistant professor of learning sciences at the University of Connecticut. And he is working to bring his expertise in neuroscience to the field of education. He argues that new advances in portable EEG technology means that researchers like him can bring new insights that can help teachers do their jobs better. He admits, though, that this technology needs to be used carefully. There are some huge ethical issues that can arise when you're talking about reading brainwaves in a classroom. I found out about Davidesco's work from our other guest today, Kristen Simmers. She's a longtime K-12 teacher, and she's so convinced by this approach that Davidesco and others are doing that She's about to start a doctoral program in the field. And for Simmers, her interest in educational research is intensely personal. She has a younger brother who was diagnosed with a specific learning difference. When I was a freshman in college, he was in first grade. And basically, um, my parents made the decision to pull him out of the public school system to try to figure out uh, how he might learn best. He wasn't thriving in the public schools. And so... My first semester of university, they pulled him out of school to try to homeschool him. And I decided I was going to try to figure out how this kid might learn best. So I signed up for Education 101 purely with the intent of thinking I could help figure out how we can teach my little brother. This one elective she took turned into a 20-year career in education. During that time, she has pursued her passions in learning about education and also about learning how the brain works. And a lot of the time, she felt like these were separate worlds. That is, until she ended up getting pointed to a group of people with similar interests that she had. It's a field that actually is growing a lot these days. So for today's episode, I ended up doing a joint interview with David Esco and with Simmers to dive into what can happen when you mix the fields of mind, brain, and education. I started out by asking David Esco more about what those EEG studies are like in classrooms. So EEG by no means is a new technology. It's been around for um, for over 90 years. So, so this is not new, but what is relatively new is the ability to do that uh, with portable devices. Um, so, so in the last 
decade or so, portable, wearable EEG devices um, became much more um, available and, um, and of lower cost than, than the typical EEG equipment that we use in labs, which has a ton of wires, expensive, not portable, um, long preparation process. Um, so now with this newer technology, we can bring EEG into real-world environments like classrooms and measure brain activity from students and teachers as they interact with one another in, in classrooms. Um, so that's research that I started doing at New York University with my colleague Susanna Dicker um, under the mentorship of David Popel at the time. And it was really excited to get involved in this project. And that was really my, um, when it all clicked in my head, the, the idea that I can actually bring together these two fields. Um, we're still at the beginning of the journey. Um, so um, we're still at a point where we're trying to understand how, what, what, what kind of research questions can be asked using this technology what is the added value of using brain technologies in classrooms compared to other research methods that education researchers use? Uh, there is still some skepticism, some pushback around what is the true value, uh, what, what really neuroscience can bring to the table. By the way, this pushback is primarily from researchers, not from educators, in my experience. Um, so in my other hat, I also do a lot of translation work with educators and in my work with teachers that I, I see the spark in their eyes and, and the interest and, and relevance that they see in this type of work. Um, but there is still some skepticism around questions on how, um, what, what neuroscience really has to add. Um, are we at a point where this research can truly be um, translational and, and inform practice in classrooms? That's wonderful. I want to unpack that because it seems like you've raised a lot of fascinating stuff. One of them is the dream, right? For you, it seems like you had a sense that there was something, uh, there was a win, there was a, 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 a an application in education. Like, what's the what's the the vision of what you can get now that this kind of study is possible? Yeah. So, so I'm really interested in. Um, studying student engagement and attention in classrooms. Um, I think that with, with the pandemic, this question became even more timely and, and relevant because students and teachers as well find it really hard to concentrate in um, both face-to-face -face and virtual environments, especially virtual environments. Oh my gosh, I have trouble as a grown-up. I, and I know I have two small kids. Yeah, it's to get a kids in Zoom class, right? It's hard. The attention issue. It is. It is. And and I think that that's one. I'm I'm um, excited about this area of research because I think that that's where neuroscience methods really have a unique contribution or might have a unique contribution. Because as of now, the 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 most commonly used method to study engagement and attention in classroom is self-reports. So we ask students how engaged they are, or, we, or perhaps we can also observe their behavior. But this is limited because students not necessarily can accurately report how engaged they are at every moment in time. It's also disruptive to keep asking students how engaged they are. These probes by themselves can affect their level of engagement. And of course, we can conduct observations. Many education researchers do that. That's extremely informative, but also limited because 
um, students might seem disengaged when they are in fact deeply cognitively engaged and you just don't see that from the outside. So with EEG, we can start looking at what is happening under the hood and start looking at students' um, cognitive processing, perhaps even in real time as they go through a learning task. Uh, specifically in one of my studies, we're looking at collaborative learning. So we have small groups of students working together on a problem and we collect their brain activity as they do that and start asking questions about how engaged they are and specifically how engaged are students that are seemingly disengaged and vice versa. And, and I think that that's where it gets really interesting, uh, where you have this mismatch supposedly between their um, explicit behavior and their implicit cognitive processes. I wonder if you don't mind if we jump to Chris for a minute, because you just mentioned like practitioners, you know, are, are, are you're hearing eager to try it, or you're seeing plenty of, of teachers say this has something to offer. Chris, what is it as you hear this, the, what is it as you kind of understood this potential research? Why as a teacher, did you think it was promising? I think the, younger you get, the less reliable probably the self-reports are. So I work with elementary age kids and that's a big ask to ask, to ask me how often I'm inattentive, that would be pretty tough. So I think the younger the students get, the harder it is to actually um, determine when they are and are not paying attention. And so if we have another window into that, and another thing that I think with these, um, with bringing the EEGs into classrooms, um, one is that we're not trying to, I think, the goal is not to isolate education to only brains. We're not trying to narrow the focus. The idea with MBE is that it's a dialogue between disciplines. So we've had education on its own. We've got some psychology as well. Why not include, I mean, the, the neuroscience studies are happening anyway. Why not include them in education? So that's, that's one. And if the studies are happening already and we want to see how they inform education, then why not try to um, get them, you know, in, in actual schools with actual kids and teachers. After the break, a look at some ethical questions raised by EEG research in education. And we'll learn about a program that lets high school students design EEG experiments that they can do on themselves. Stay with us. Do you know someone interested in becoming an elementary teacher? Emporia State University's 33-hour elementary education master's program allows individuals to do just that regardless of their background of study. The coursework is available online, and the clinical classroom experience can be completed at a placement near you, allowing you to earn a master's degree without changing locations. In as little as two years, Emporia students will not only have a master's degree, but they'll also be eligible for an elementary education teaching license, depending on their home state's requirements. Send your paras, stay-at-home parents, subs, and anyone else who might be interested to emporia.edu slash teachers college to learn more. That address once more is emporia.edu slash teachers college. Now back to the episode. So Ido, back to you. So you said though some researchers, which is super interesting to me, had some questions about whether putting this kind of technology into uh, these EEGs into on kids and testing this, whether that would have much benefit. Is that what I heard you say? That, that there was a little bit of skepticism or pushback. What, what did you, could you say a little bit more about that? Sure. So, so first there are some ethical concerns about putting EGs on students in school. So 
neural science data can be very easily be misinterpreted or, or misused. Um, and there are already some, some cases around the world where uh, students are um, required to wear a portable EEG device that is supposedly measuring their attention um, or inattentiveness. And, and parents get notifications in real time on their cell phones based on that. Students are perhaps graded or even punished based on that. That's terrible in my mind. There are companies marketing products that do this, I, I hear. That's really concerning in my mind for, for many different reasons. One is that this technology is just not at a stage. I'm not sure it will ever be at a stage. I'm not sure we want that technology to be at a stage where it can monitor students' attention in real time and be used for, um, for teaching or for behavioral modification um, purposes. Um, as of now, EEG is just way too noisy for that. Each time you move your head, you blink your eyes, you move your eyes, that create, create artifacts in the EEG recordings, meaning that we cannot really make any claims about individual students based on their EEG data. All the research that I'm doing is done at the group level. So we can say that across a large group of students, there is a correlation between perhaps activity in a specific frequency band in the EEG and attention, but that doesn't necessarily apply to individual students. And um, as, as we know, neuroscience has this uh, impact of, on people where, you know, when you put brain or neuro in front of something, it immediately becomes more convincing, more appealing to people, even when it's not. And I think that that's where we want to be really, really careful. Um, I think that one concern is, especially with regard to groups that are traditionally um, um, minority, minoritized um, in, in, or underrepresented in science, and, and, and neuroscience data can be used to perhaps label students, segregate students, uh, again, make claims about students that are uh, not based on on real data on, on, or on reliable data. So that's where we want to be really, really careful with this kind of technology. So that's, I, I would say, one group of concerns. Um, another group of concerns is, is with regard to what can we learn from this technology? What is the added value, as I mentioned earlier? Um, and, and I welcome this feedback because I think that this feedback from other researchers made me think really hard about what, what kind of research questions we can ask that really uh, uncover the potential of these uh, new methods. And, and perhaps one thing to emphasize is that um, I, I never argue that neuroscience methods should replace any of the other methods that we use in education research. I think that it's all about, and Chris also um, hinted to that, it's all about the synergy between different methods that we use across different disciplines. Oh, that's so interesting. That seems like a theme of like this mind-brain, it's like mind-brain education. It's like actually looking, including all of these different perspectives in a kind of holistic look at what you can learn about um, how to improve classroom um, practices. So speaking of classroom practices, tell me a little bit about the, the Brainwaves program. And how did you, how did you, like maybe how did it even come to be? And then what is it? Yeah, yeah, thanks for asking that. So, so Brainwaves is a, um, a neuroscience, a semester-long neuroscience curriculum for high school students, where students use portable EEGs to learn about their own brain activity. Um, it's funded by the NIH Science Education Partnership Award Program, 
or SIPA, and it actually um, came into the world as part of the research that I talked about earlier, um, where we um, went into a high school classroom, put EEGs on students and measured their brain activity. When we, when we were done collecting data that took some time, we um, allowed students to, um, to, we basically turned the table around, we asked students to become researchers. So we provided the technology to the students and allowed them to ask their own research questions, collect some data, analyze it, and, um, and present their findings at the end of the process. These are high school students. Yeah this, yeah, this was just one high school in New York City where we started this research in 2015. Um, and that led to this NIH-funded program that by now, by now we're um, four years into, the, into this grant, and this program has been implemented in nearly 30 public schools in New York, primarily um, underserved schools, um, and it, and and that has been such a fantastic journey to be able to work with students and teachers and other scientists. So we have PhD and postdocs um, working with us as science mentors. So they visit the schools, they help teachers with the implementation of the program, specifically with technology-related aspects, um, and they help mentor the students through the process of developing their own research questions and collecting data. No, that makes perfect sense. And then what do the teachers um, who participate get out of this? Yeah, so we're really lucky to partner with some truly amazing teachers in, in New York City. And, and now we're also expanding that to other parts of, of, the, of the U.S. And, and also to Israel. We're about to start a pilot in Israel over the summer. So, so the teachers are... are truly amazing. And, and, you know, I feel that I'm, I'm learning from these teachers as much as they perhaps learned from us. Um, I think that in addition to content knowledge, so, so these teachers are all science teachers, but they do not necessarily have background in neuroscience. So they all go through a week-long a summer professional development course, and we have additional a professional development throughout the year. So one thing that they get out of it is just you know, learning more about neuroscience and about EEG technology and so on. But I think that the most more important thing is being learning how to mentor students through the process of um, research, which, again, is not something that they are typically um, trained or have the background to do. It's not easy either, especially when you think about a large classroom of perhaps 30 plus students um, and, and, you know, each student perhaps has their own ideas and their own interests. So, um, so learning how to mentor students effectively and, and turn that into an effective learning experience, we spend quite a lot of time working on that. Okay, I want to go back to Chris now. So how did, how did um, Chris, how did you end up? So first of all, like, make sure I understand your connection to um Edo's program, if at all, like how that, I mean, other than it sounds like you're, yeah. yeah. No, it's all, it's all up and coming. So I'm leaving teaching at the end of this year after 16 years to move into a PhD program studying with Edo. That's exciting. And how did you, so I'm just curious, like, did you, what, what is it that sparked that big change? Um, it was a lot, a lot of this goes down to one person, um, Tracy Takahuma Espinosa, who's big in MBE. And, um, I started picking up a little bit of momentum within my school and within the region with helping 
um, to bring MBE research into schools. So I was able to start a little professor, you know, professional learning community within my school. I was able to present locally at educational conferences and a few internationally. And I was talking to Tracy and looking for how we could kind of grow this because I felt like I was having an impact on a micro level, but I feel so strongly about this. And I also feel like um, the students that I have the most access to are not the students that are chronically underserved by education systems. So I, you know, I teach at a private school that doesn't give scholarships. And I just was, I couldn't help but think um, this needs to be getting out there on, you know, wider, quicker, and to the, to the people. And by this, I mean, um, educational pedagogy that is, I'm sorry, educational pedagogy that's, that's well supported by research. Um, So Tracy was the one that that said, well, why don't you look at doing a PhD? Because that's how you're going to meet the people who are actually kind of change makers in this space or pioneering in this space. Another draw for Simmers is simply spreading the word about this field of MBE to other teachers. There's a lot of room, I think, to get some of this information into teacher training. There are some organizations that are already doing that, but one of the most common um, pieces of feedback that I get from teachers when I present some of this information is I've never heard this before. Like, why didn't I hear, why aren't we getting, you know, this information from cognitive psychology? Absolutely. I also think that the neuroscience information um, when used effectively and intentionally can be hugely empowering for teachers and for kids. So I think if you look at something like a, like an educational practice that is well-backed by research, that's gaining traction recently, you know, retrieval practice is one example. So one, how do we get um, these methodologies to teachers? Two, do we un- do we? How do we get the understanding to the teachers of why they work? And three, the ultimate to me is: can we get it to these students so that the students understand how they learn best? And that's where I think that's kind of my dream in bringing the neuroscience into classrooms is that those kids then become masters of their own learning. They actually understand how they learn. And so they know what tools help their learning best. And I think the actual neuroanatomy and the neuroscience of learning, first off, it's wildly fascinating to kids. And I also think it's it's very empowering because I think when you understand how learning does and does not happen, I think you're able to take away some of the value judgments in learning. So it's harder to think that I'm dumb or that I, that I can't do it or I'm a bad learner when I actually understand neuroplasticity and I understand that challenge is an opportunity for growth. And I know, I know how I learn best. So that's, that's what I hope to do is um, really get this information to teachers so they can pass it on to kids so kids can become you know, masters of their own learning. And that's why when thinking about the way the students are involved in programs like Brainwaves, I'd be super fascinated to hear that student experience, how, how sure. they feel coming out of that. Yeah. No, and and you just mentioned the, um, you know, this retrieval practice is, is we, it's funny, we just talked about that on last week's episode for people who follow the the podcast, but just it's the, also somebody told me it's also called the testing effect, but the idea that if you quiz someone on on a fact, even if they don't know it, even if they fail to retrieve it, but the act of what is that number again? Or what is that? That, that actually 
helps solidify that knowledge. That actually helps you as a, so the, the right or wrong answer is less important than the actual like cold moment where the student is like having to draw it out. So that's, that's something that neuroscience tells, tells you and others about, about teaching. Yeah. And I teach that to five-year-olds. Like my kindergarten students will know that looking for it in your brain, trying to remember is a really healthy thing to do and not finding it is expected and fine. And yeah. I think that um, that understanding of what remembering is, and here's why we're asking, you know, I'll use um, terminology with the kids like new connections. Um, you know, if they, if they don't, if they're struggling with a concept, you know, an example is a kid that was playing on a board game with CVC words and all the other kids were really quick and we got to him and he was stuck. And another kid went to help, you know, trying to be helpful. These are our first grade students. And I said, wait. And I looked at him and I said, I think, is this a new connection for you? And he's like, yeah. And I said, okay, do you want to try to do it? Like make it yourself or do you want help? And he's like, I want to try it by myself. I said, okay. So that, and then we gave him wait time and he got it and the whole group celebrates. So that's what I mean by um, taking the value judgment out of learning. Like, it's not a bad thing that you don't know. It's not a bad thing that you don't remember. That's expected. And we have tools to address that. What a great example. And like, I love this looking for it in your brain. I just, I love how tactile that feels to be like, and honestly, we've all been there no matter what age you are um, to, to, to have that moment. You know, do you have any comments after hearing all this? Um, I'm just curious your thoughts. That's, just you know fantastic to hear and i wish that i could you know like be a tiny fly on your in your classroom chris and observe that <laughs> um yeah i'm i'm actually you know i've never been a full-time teacher so i'm i'm actually jealous um because chris gets to to actually you know implement these methods rather than just talk about these well i i do try to implement them in my own teaching i teach uh, undergrads and grad students and occasionally i teach uh, school students as well but it's a very different experience to do that full time um, and that's actually one of the first things that i tell teachers in my workshops that you know i've never being a full-time teacher, I'm, I'm here to learn as much as I'm here to share some, some knowledge and some, some insights. Um, and, and perhaps, yeah, one last concluding thought is that MBE, Mind, Brain, and Education, as Chris mentioned, is all about this synergy between disciplines, but also synergy between researchers and practitioners. And I think that most of the translation in the field as of now is still very much um, goes in one direction, from research to practice. And we need more translation in the opposite direction, from practice to research. And that's why I'm really excited to have Chris join my group to think more about how we can facilitate that. Well, thank you both so much for sharing your stories. Um, a lot of fascinating material here. Thank you so much for having us, Jeff. This was the EdSurge podcast. We're here every week with new episodes. And if you don't already, please do subscribe wherever you listen to podcasts. We have a lot going on these days on the show. We'll be doing a live session of the Ed Surge podcast at the upcoming ISTE Live conference in June. Stay tuned for more details about that. And we now have a newsletter for the Ed Surge podcast. It's a great way to get reminders every time we have a new episode, as well as links to articles and projects that we mention in each episode. 
You can sign up for that at edsurge.com. Just go up to the top right, look for the newsletter link, and click on EdSurge Podcast Newsletter. Also, we are busily working on new episodes of the Bootstraps podcast series that we have going. That series is about equity in education, where we're breaking down some myths about who gets what and why and how that might be changing. Stay tuned soon for a new episode in that series right on this feed. And you can look back a couple episodes ago and, and check out the first episode if you missed it. This episode was written and produced by me, Jeff Young, and you can find me on Twitter at J.R. Young. Music for this episode was by Rowan Jane. That track is called The Mind Scatters. We'll be back next week with more about how education is changing. Thank you for listening, and we're going to go out with the sound of brainwaves by some researchers who used EEG machines to try to convert brainwaves into audio format. <laughs> <laughs>